Welcome to the SLU Podcast, where capital and innovation meet the Permian Basin. Hey guys, this is your host, Tim Powell, SVP of the Americas from Oil and Gas Council and advisor to the SLU Enterprise. Today we're joined by James Spillane, advisor of strategic alliances at the SLU Enterprise. During the episode, James talks about the role that Baker Botts, Grant Thornton, and Ryder Scott have played to help build out the framework of the SLU marketplace. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what James has to say. James, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking the time to do this. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Before we jump into Escandia and, and your background and ultimately the SLU enterprise, a little quick introduction on you know who you are, where you grew up, where you live now, and how you got into the oil and gas industry. And we'll, we'll kind of jump into the beginning of your career. Uh, yes, I grew up here in Houston. Father uh, uh, had moved to Houston. He had been... Uh, with Monsanto for a number of years. Uh, they invented uh, AstroTurf. Uh, we're working with a small company here in Houston. They ended up hiring my father to come down and run the company, so we moved here when I was nine. Grew up in West Houston, uh, Memorial area. Ended up going to Strake Jesuit, Texas A&M for a couple of years and graduated from uh, University of Houston with a finance degree back in 83. And when you went to A&M, did you get a petroleum engineering career uh, degree or how did you when did you say, think to yourself, I'm getting into oil and gas? Uh, no, actually, I was uh, in industrial engineering for a couple of years at Texas A&M. Switched over to University of Houston, got into finance. I originally expected to go to work for, uh, for Citibank out of Houston in their management training program. They started through their financial difficulties, met a recruiter uh, from uh, Pennzoil who needed help in their land department. And uh, December of uh, that year, I uh, began uh, with Pennzoil in their land department. Spent uh, about six years uh, as an analyst, senior analyst, uh, and then became a division analyst in 86. And, and then uh, ultimately in 1992, uh, became a Western Division controller, joint interest gas coordinator, ran our non-op joint venture uh, wells in the Permian Basin after the uh, Texaco Pennzoil settlement and acquisition of properties from Chevron. Perfect. Yeah. And so the, the original intent to be in the finance world actually started to circle back at early nineties and later in your careers, you had some CFO roles, right? And then your first foyer with, with the Permian Basin came at that time, just for everyone's reference, because what the SLU is looking to accomplish is tackling issues that are quite different than the dynamics of the nineties and the Permian. So just for conversational purposes, we'd love to hear what was the look and feel of the Permian back then when you were running that, that joint venture? Well, of course, everything was, you know, conventional drilling, the, the first idea of some of the horizontals were just getting started. But, uh, you know, we had acquired, you know, some 2,500 properties in the Permian Basin from Chevron, uh, all the way from strictly gas, vertical gas wells, Ellenberger, as well as uh, we had Sackrock Field that we had acquired that was a big CO2 uh, water flood field in the Permian Basin. And so at that point, you know, so much of this was into production optimization, looking at cost control, looking at innovations that came in and managing what was then a pretty large gas asset for uh, Pennzoil. We produced about 400 million uh, cubic feet of gas a day, and we had to create a system for managing that gas, avoiding penalties, pipelines, optimizing for cash flows, acquisition of CO2 for uh, SACROC and the plans that were involved with uh, some of that further development and uh, getting that field up and running and optimized. So it was a significant asset for us. Yeah. And, you know, one thing, this will be a theme in your career, right, is production optimization. That's how you 
ultimately crossed paths with Stefan and Escambia and have gotten involved in the SOU story for sure. But we'll, we'll get back to that in, in a bit here. So a dozen years of Pennzoil, 83 to 95, mid-90s, you jump over to a firm called Genmel Company. A little background there. You were there for six years. Uh, yes. Uh, I had actually left Pennzoil to go with a uh, natural gas storage firm. Uh, they wanted to acquire their own production and work with uh, producers. About six months into it, their investors decided they were going to stick with gas storage optimization. So I basically took those clients that I had developed uh, with, with that firm and began managing their oil and gas production, optimizing their production, helping them find reserves and resources, and uh, did all their hedging and uh, marketing of crude oil, did much of their land work and different things that were part of my background, helping them with the reserves as well. So Genmail Company started with about two clients, eventually over six years developed to about 25 different clients one of which led me into uh, eventually going to Crystal River Oil and Gas as their land marketing manager back in 2001. Okay. And then you, you spent another dozen years at Crystal River. And so that I would say was a, a natural progression for you getting the experience and the toolkit to really run a company, right? So you went from land manager up into the CFO role. And again, what what are the, the operations for Crystal River? Same type of thing, production optimization and mature fields and things of that nature? Yes, Crystal River had acquired a number of properties from mid-80s up until the early 2000s. And they had operated properties in Oklahoma and Kansas and Texas and New Mexico, eventually Wyoming and Northern California and Colorado as well. And they had a number of uh, non-op properties as well. An unusual thing about Crystal River was uh, they really had three different segments. They had a operating side, they had a mineral royalty side, and they had a real estate side. Whenever they sold oil and gas properties, they bought real estate. So in addition to the oil and gas side, we ultimately we ended up building an office building, bought another building. We managed about $50 million worth of real estate as well as uh, an operating side and a uh, non-op side and mineral side to the company. So part of what went through with Crystal River was the structure, getting the structure right, going through uh, all the real estate to buy, put together properties, uh, manage the construction side of it, as well as uh, continuing on with uh, its oil and gas operations, uh, primarily in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and New Mexico. Fantastic. And, and you, you ended your run with them 2013, you were the CFO at that time. And then for a couple of years, you were at a small EMP called Escudo Oil and Gas, which same thing, right? Mature field operations, you were kind of going into fields that were not profitable at the time and turning them around. And that was the segue into a scanning energy operating that you ended up running as a mixture of CFO, managing director and president over a three to four year period. How did you meet Stefan? How did you get on how did Escandia get on your horizon and the backstory on, on that? Over my career, both from companies I've worked with, things that have done, I have you know looked and managed and done due diligence and helped acquire about four and a half billion dollars worth of oil and gas properties. And uh, initially, uh, Scandia was looking for uh, someone to help them uh, acquire oil and gas assets. Uh, started talking with uh, with Mark and Stefan and Pierre about that. And eventually he said, look, with your background, we think we found someone that can help us with the acquisition side, but we really need a CFO to help us come in and run that part of the asset and help us, you know, optimize what we can. So let's focus on that. 
and with that, in uh, uh, June of 2016, I uh, came over to uh, Scandia as the uh, CFO. Perfect. And, you know, I, I think taking a step back, just kind of describing for everyone who's listening, the Escandia vehicle and IEO, as we'll refer to it, Escandia Energy Operating, that is the operating arm of of the broader Escandia Energy holding company. You have Technology Enhanced Oil, PLC, TEO, as we'll refer to it, is the investment vehicle, which raises money from pensions in Europe. And, and what's interesting, and, and this is the tie-in to the SLU that we'll make later, is that there's a, a there's an ESG angle that's really really interesting and in, in what a Scandi has built up and maximizing the value out of these mature field operations and doing so in an environmentally friendly way has enabled a Scandi as a group through TEO to raise this this ESG money out of Europe and I think this structure uh, is really interesting as well because TEO is is simply an investment vehicle. IEO is is the operating arm. And so the investors in Europe are not investing into the operations. They're investing into the asset level. So mm-hmm. would love for you to expand upon that a little bit. I mean, you one, you ran the operations for years. And then two, you, you had talked about some of the structuring that you had done at Crystal River, right? And, you know, as a CFO, having the CFO hat on. So marry that all together, because I think that's really interesting. And then we'll parlay that into the SLU story. Well, the primary focus or goal of Scandia and TEO was to find mature conventional assets that could be renewed, revitalized, and restored uh, using today's technologies that were compatible with ESG standards to change the way we were doing business, find ways that we could do things that were more environmentally friendly, yet that would help us find new reserves and increase cash flows at, at, a, at a really attractive price over time. Now, we had some learning that had to go as, as we developed that asset, how to, how to use the right set of tools in the right way to, to get those cash flows and to get things going. And it took some time. And we, we were very effective with that over time. I think when we, we looked at it uh, initially, you know, we were over $15,000 a flowing barrel with some of the initial work that we did. By the time that we finished our workovers and programs, we'd gotten it down to under 3,000 barrels a day with additional uh, work that we were doing and bringing additional production on. We, we were recognized as an efficient operator. We were seen as someone who could take these assets on and restore them, bring them back to life using environmentally friendly methods to the point where another operator, Noble, ended up giving us uh, 70, 70 some odd wells that were marginally producing that we, we assumed the production of those wells. I think that it was a $1 transaction that we then doubled that production in less than 30 days. Uh, like I said, for less than uh, $3,000 a flowing barrel and got that production up and managed those assets using new technologies with new people that are focused on the conventional asset that understood how to optimize that production. And that was really what the Scandia and TEO's, you know, goal and focus was, was to take these fields that were already drilled wells. There was enough holes in the ground. We didn't need to go after new wells. But we also saw through this process that we're maintaining production for other operators that are down below going from Wolf Camp and other areas, and that there was a value or optionality to the work that we were doing in increasing and restoring these production, that these deeper depths were being held by the work we were doing. It kind of led us into the idea of the SLU enterprise and what we're working for and, and the value that was there by the work that we were doing at Escandian TEO. Yeah, I think that's the really interesting part of all this, right? So you, you kind of stumbled upon 
upon this opportunity and the the idea of the SCU Enterprise because of the dynamics of what happened and played out as you were growing Scandia Energy Operating. So I, I think getting getting those assets for a dollar, one was unique to you guys. I, you know, when I talked to Stefan, he has a a long track record in investing in technologies in the mining space and natural resources, more broadly speaking. And he said to me, he said, you know, Tim, the lessons learned that I can extract from over the years is that you really want to own the IP on a technology, not own the technology itself. Because once you invest all the money in R&D and, you know, making it commercial, there's, there's a, the market will identify that and copy you. But if you can use, specifically in the application of mature fuel oil and gas, the, the what makes it so complex is that every well is a bit different. And so if you can have the IP around how to use a basket of technologies to enhance production, and that's what you referred to on, it took us a while to figure it out, that, uh, that's, that's much more powerful. So I think that, that I always found interesting in, in, in talks with Stefan over the years, and then having that IP to more cost-effectively operate these assets very cheaply. And then in some cases, you could take shut-in wells and you could produce them commercially, right? So there was an opportunity to, to build a nice little operating company there, several thousand barrels a day. But then with the trading background of Mark and Stefan and Michael, that got their attention, right? Of, well, wait a second, why would someone give us these assets for a dollar? They're clearly worth more. And it was a function of the markets, right? I mean, you have all these assets on the balance sheet of these Permian Basin EMP companies. They have more than they they can develop. Put another way, they can't get the capital to develop it in in the time horizon needed. So they need to HVP the acreage. And that's where you guys would come in. You would hold it for them, give them the option then to hold that those deep rights for a longer period of time and then drill them at a, at a later date. And that that's really interesting. So if you remember, right, the, the early days of the SLU enterprise were DRAP or DRAP. Um, I, I don't know how you guys refer to it, but the deep rights acquisition pool is to raise a fund to right. replicate that transaction at scale. And then that morphed into what the SLU enterprise is today. But you want to go back down um, kind of how that original concept was and where the headspace was for, for the team? Just curious to, to hear from your perspective. Well, we saw this optionality and we saw that there was a opportunity to acquire HPP assets that had these deeper rights available and that then those deeper rights could be optioned or securitized and found a way to, to go after that these oil and gas companies had been rewarded in the past for acquiring significant drilling locations, almost like you said earlier, more so than they could possibly drill. And yet they needed to extend that time and had to find a way to do that. And so what DRAP was, was, was circulating around it was finding those opportunities to extend some options to those companies to acquire those assets and create uh, the SLUs out of, out of that process and to, and to monetize that asset that right now, you know, wasn't being able to be monetized. They didn't have the, the ability of liquidity to drill that. And so it was going to be an acquisition fund that was going to go acquire the, these assets and, and to develop those SLUs that could be ultimately uh, drilled and, uh, and securitized and marketed. So we kind of evolved from that to the SLU and we decided let's work directly with those oil and gas companies and let's create this entity that will manage that whole process for them and to, and to work with them to you know take these these drilling locations and sites that are on their balance sheets that aren't able to perform for them and find a way that we can 
uh, help with their liquidity, to provide the cash and the assets they need in a market that, that right now is pretty capital, capital constrained. So it, it was a natural progression of where we started as we looked at this optionality and then we saw that there is significant value there. And then let's work with these oil companies to create an asset and vehicle that can get us there. So it is a natural progression through through the process. Yeah, like you said, I mean, holding that acreage and giving operators the option to develop it later, that was solving one problem, right? But right. the access to capital to develop these assets, that that's probably the biggest issue. I think holding the acreage into perpetuity, if you may, is just something you could do better than others. But the, the key to the kingdom is is really getting the billions of dollars needed to unlock the resource potential going forward. And that's where the SLU enterprise comes in, the SLU market. And that's what's really, really innovative. It's how do you get liquidity out of these undeveloped reserves, the undeveloped acreage, which now you guys have coined as, as SLUs, super location units, to then get capital back towards the drill bit to further develop. And it's, you know, it kind of, the momentum builds on itself, right? And then ultimately the SLUs will start to get developed and you have cash flow and then different types of investors who need yield can come in. So it's really a fascinating how it all comes together. I, I just always like to tell the story of how you got there because there was bits and pieces, you know, crumbs along the way that you guys were following to, to piece it together. And, you know, I think while you started to connect the dots and say, okay, there's option value here, there's liquidity issues, let's create a market that then enables, creates liquidity for these assets. In order to do that, there's certain key things that need to be implemented and there's strategic partnerships that need to be put in place. And that's where you sit today, overlooking all the strategic alliances for the SLU. So I think the the first one and the real game changer, because I've been involved with your team as, as things have materialized, was the Ryder Scott partnership. Would love to hear how how y'all started that and originated it and what it really means, right? The how, Explain why it's the Moody's of, of the SLU market. Well, it was really interesting. You know, a lot of this is, is has this developed at the right time, at the right place, uh, with the right people. I mean, you surround yourself with good people and, and you can achieve great things. But really what happened in this is that when we first were developing the idea, we sat down, we talked with uh, some of the folks at Ryder Scott, and they were in the middle of a process where they were looking at the geology and, and economics of the Wolf Camp Bone Springs and the Permian Basin, and they had done a huge amount of work and were looking to see how they could develop that or monetize that. And as we sat down and talked with them about what we wanted to do with the SLU enterprise, not only did they get it, but they saw the opportunity to kind of be that Moody's if they were a third-party rating company. Because part of what we looked at this and we said, the only way this is going to be successful to not only the oil and gas companies that are putting these assets together and putting it into the SLU program, but also if the investors and those that, are, that, are, that potentially can be a part of this understood that there was a rating that a third party could step back and look and go. And, and Ryder Scott, with, with their background and their ability and their nameplate, you know, really seen as that, that level of integrity that they've always had. Not only did they get it, but they saw that they could be that type of Moody's and, and they, they put their best people on this, they researched it, involved it, and saw what they would have to do, how they could be that independent rating entity, what they would have to do to, to rate this, how they could bring in all this other geologic and geophysical and uh, engineering and economic studies they've been putting together, and saw that they could, they could be an integral part of this program. 
And so, it, you know, it was one of those things where after a 30-minute conversation with them, not only did they get it, but they saw the opportunity and wanted to be involved with it and then committed the people, time, and resources to help us develop this further. And, and of course, once you start with, okay, we have this, this, this asset and we're starting to look at how we're going to rate it and evolve it, then you get into all the legal sides and legal issues and start talking to some of the uh, law firms here in Houston. And again, Baker Botts, you know, understood it, saw the opportunity. They've helped work with so many companies to bring, you know, new advances in, in oil and gas and financing and structures and entities. And, and, and they saw that with the right structure that, that and having a, a partner like Ryder Scott to view this from the outside, that they could help structure a, an entity that, that could be a vehicle to bring the value forward and to bring the liquidity the market needs and have a, have a structure that investors would be interested in. So, you know, of course, as you start through the, the, the structure and the engineering and the assets, then of course, that leads you into the accounting side. And again, you know, through some contacts we had in the uh, Permian Strategic Partnership and the folks we're working with, you know, recommended we talk to Grant Thornton, who again, they got the SLU idea right away. They brought in, helped us on the audit side. They, they saw, you know, what tweaks we would need to do on the accounting side to make things work, how it would be accounted. There's still legal and accounting work that needs to be done, but that's really for the SLU Council once it's formed and things go forward. But the, the basic structure, the alliances we have, the people we put together, these are top rate folks that, you know, understand the process, their level of integrity is significant, you know, and it's a great team of people that we've assembled together to, to make this project work, both internally at uh, Scandia and the SLU Enterprise, but also externally with folks like Ryder Scott and Baker Boss and Grant Thorne. It, it's, it's a great team of people. Oh, absolutely. And can you, uh, in terms of structures, can you kind of spell out what you're referring to with the SLU Council? I know you have the SLU Club that Joe and Adam are building. What is the SLU Enterprise in, in terms of just segmenting it all and, and how the different parts fit together? Well, the SLU Council initially will probably be three to five EMP companies, of course, along perhaps with Ryder Scott, Baker, Boss, Grant Thornton, and some investors that are out there as well. So what we want to try to do is, is to have this nonprofit entity that's going to help set the final rules, regulations, and standards of what the SLU marketplace will look like. Uh, the role of SLU Enterprise is to try to be that governance, well, the, the executive side of things to try to enforce the rules that are put in place by them and to ensure that the marketplace, uh, you know, is, is working effectively and efficiently. So, you know, our role will be to, you know, enforce the rules that are put forth by this nonprofit SLU council that ultimately will grow as you have uh, additional, you know, investors and SLUs generating these things go forward. So, and, and to just make an example of, of something that's functioning and working that's recent, just for everyone listening, it's, it's basically a reiteration of the Permian Strategic Partnership, right? I mean, it's, it's the structure that the SLU Council is looking to replicate. Right. No, absolutely. And then talk to me about, because I know in addition to the strategic alliances, you are working with all these partners on the framework and, and the structure and everything. Can you get into the weeds a little bit on you know the, the JOAs and the land legal side? of the SLU units themselves. I think what's interesting is how you look at this. So if, if you have an operator, let's call it Apache or, or Oxy or Exxon, that has acreage in the Permian Basin, they're going to then 
pool this acreage into different SLU units and contribute them to the SLU market. They then are shareholders in the SLU units and these units can be invested in or traded. When you invest in those units, it's not like you're directly investing into the stock of Exxon or Apache, right? Can you just describe that framework? Because I think what we'll get into here in a little bit is how that is integral into getting all sorts of different capital and it unlocks the potential for ESG capital to get involved as well down the road. One of the guiding principles of what we tried to do with this process is to put together a framework that was relevant, transparent, and as clear and simple as possible that created efficiencies. And so when you look at the SLUJOA, and as we say these things get put together, what we're trying to accomplish is to make a structure that can allow for the free exchange of assets, both the working and royalty interests as they go forward, but also provides protection for the for the prime for the prime operator to be able to conduct its business and normally conducting it, and yet treat the non-operators or, or the other share interests as fair as possible as well, and to eliminate some of the biggest issues that, that revolve around operations as they go forward in the consents and non-consents and capital calls and, and, and development plans to where all of this is put forward in, in the very beginning to where we understand that putting together an agreement that is as fair as possible to all parties, both operator and non-operator, that provides for upfront capital commitments. There won't be any non-consents that are involved. There'll be structured capital calls. So you know ahead of time what you're going to have to spend, when you're going to have to spend it, and you have a, a solidly defined development plan that may change over time depending on situations and occurrences, but yet it, it is pretty well structured as to what you have to do over time so that you go into an SLU or you go into the SO entity and you, you become a shareholder in that you understand what your capital commitments are going to be. You understand what the development plan is going to be. You're going to understand when wells are going to be drilled, when production is going to start. And so you, you, you can begin then to have what we call ownership in the rock versus ownership in the company, what we talked about earlier. So it, it's an ability that you can then look to see when that, that capital call is going to occur, when your production is going to start. And when you're going to start seeing those cash flows from that, they're going to, they can happen in a way that you may be able even to hedge against WTI and have a physical production asset occurring from, you know, what currently is, is non-productive, you know, uh, acreage drill sites that aren't being developed. So you can see with some certainty that's being rated by a third-party entity as to quality and commerciality uh, what that asset is and, and to see when those things are going to occur over time. So it, it's uh, really been a fascinating project to put this together in a way that provided that transparency and relevancy that the market needs, as well as having a third-party rating company that uh, can sit there and, and give you the ability to, to understand what that asset is worth and what it may be worth relative to other assets that may be rated differently over time, right? Absolutely. I mean, tying it back before we wrap up the episode here, James, it's the model that Escandia has been doing since 2015, right? So the SLU units are actually TEO, right? And IEO are the Permian Basin operators. And that's kind of the relationship. It's just being replicated now at scale. Mm -hmm. And instead of mature field operations, this is deep rights, unconventional, best rock in the business in the Permian Basin. 
And then along the lifeline of that particular SLU or those reserves, you're going to have different financial players with different costs of capital and different risk profiles participating. And then there's liquidity to get in and out at the right times. And so what doesn't exist today is someone who wants to come in longer term on that undeveloped acreage. It's just basically getting no value and it's just sitting on these balance sheets. Someone can come in. I think it's key. You had mentioned is structured capital costs. So someone can come in, become a shareholder of an undeveloped SLU you and they're not expected to make any capex uh, commitments whereas if you wanted to participate in that upside in a company you'd have to participate in those you know either directly or indirectly as a shareholder along the way until they it gets to that point so that's one barrier of entry that's removed for certain types of investors and then you can trade these you create a market where people can go long and short on the SLUs and you have market makers starting to extract value out of this and that those dollars get redirected back towards the drill bit and then again making the analogy back to TEO and IEO, where you guys had cash flow, the opportunity for pensions to come in, insurance, really any any yield type investor where you, there's production, cash flows, there can be hedging that's utilized, whatever, whatever is a fit for that particular investor. I mean, so it, it really opens up a whole world of possibility. I guess the last thing I'd ask you to, to touch upon is why ESG capital can come into the play here on SLUs. The way I like to think about it, it makes it easy to understand is that each SLU has a clean slate. So how that SLU is developed, if it wants to attract certain types of environmentally friendly capital, it can be developed with best practices and technologies that hit the right check boxes, right? Versus a company that might have a mixed bag of, of environmental uh, and carbon emission footprints. These are individual units standalone on, the, on themselves, right? So a third-party investor who has stricter environmental standards may not be able to invest in a company, but can invest in SLU. Can you elaborate on that? So I think that that's a really powerful distinction to make given the, the headwinds a lot of companies are facing in the capital markets right now around ESG. Well, it, it is. It, and what we've tried to say from the very beginning is that the work involved to put together their assets to create an NSLU entity is, is not significantly different than what they're doing now with the process, their, their land work, and engineering, reserve, putting things together. But when you can start with an asset that is, is clean and is fresh, now you can, as a particular operator, if you decide that you want to have particular ESG standards where you, you know, you're only going to do things a certain way or you're not going to have any flaring here or, or these, these are the issues you're going to do there, you can structure that particular SLU entity the way you want to to match the goals that you need to to get the investors you want that see that particular standard. And different operators may have different standards that they're going to apply to. And you can have investors that are only going to go into those type of SLUs that promote the ESG standards. So it creates an opportunity for producers to structure their SLU entities the way that is most attractive to the capital we're looking for. And it's is pretty much along the lines of the way they're currently doing business, but provides greater transparency and responsibility to, to those investors that are coming along. So it's a great asset with an opportunity here to do things that are, that are needed in today's market and for today's capital. And, and what is on, on the back of kind of the theme of structure, what is an SLU exactly? Is it a standardized amount of acreage or there are a variety of other technical criteria that need to be satisfied and that's where Ryder Scott comes in? I mean, can you can you well, just describe that? I mean Well an SLU is actually one million barrels of oil equivalent that has been analyzed um, for its 
quality and commerciality by, by Ryder Scott. That's within what we call the, the SLU entity, which will be a, a 1,280-acre, two-section you know, unit that's put together uh, for the purposes of the development of those SLUs. So one, one individual 1,280-acre area may have a number of SLUs inside of it as it's rated in the Wolf Camp Bone Springs by Ryder Scott. Gotcha. Perfect. Well, very good, James. Uh, I've enjoyed the chat. I think this is really helpful for everyone listening to really better understand uh, the SLU from from your perspective. Someone is coming kind of a land or operations person, you know, some sort of bleed over and finance. Uh, seeing it through your eyes, your eyes, I think is really helpful. So appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Any closing comments to your EMP peers and your peers in the industry and then also the financial community at large. I'll let you take it away. Well, as I see it, here's an opportunity for companies that have been previously rewarded for finding you know, years and years of, of, of drillable locations and spaces that currently isn't able to do anything for them. It's on their balance sheet, but it, it's a non-performing asset to find a way to bring in some additional liquidity to get the funds needed to develop and, and to see the Wolf Camp Bone Springs developed in a responsible way as we work with our ESG standards and partners to make this make this possible. So I, to me, this is the next stage in our efficiency, in our ability to bring things forward in a, in a clear, transparent, and relevant way that the SLU allows to happen. So it's a tremendous structure. I think it's the right time, the right place with the right partners. As we as we go forward, so it's been it's been a really rewarding project to work on, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, James. I look forward to seeing you soon, and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll do. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The SLU Enterprise is striving to standardize, commoditize, and monetize oil and gas reserves in the Permian Basin. If you're interested in learning more about how your team can participate in the SLU marketplace, then please email. Joe Quiersar, SVP of EMP Industry Affairs at jquoyeser at sluenterprise.com. Thanks and see you next time.